Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to have you here. Welcome to Legacy. If this is one of your first times here, it's good to have you here. Hey, listen, I apologize for the parking situation. Uh, once a year, the Army National Guard, which is neighboring us, the next lot over, I guess it would be that way, not this way. They have a changing of the guard every year. It's a pretty big ceremony, and so that's what all the cars are. True story, I think, if my memory's right, it's probably not, but I think our very first Sunday here ever was that Sunday that they did this, and they used a tank to block the entrance to try to move all of the traffic in a certain direction. There was a legitimate tank with the gun and the tracks and everything which the 15-year-old in me thought was really cool, the church planner not so much. So we asked him to move it so we could let our seven cars in or whatever we had coming that day. Um, but they are still doing it. So if you see a guards person whenever you are walking to or from the bathrooms or whenever you're leaving, give them a high five, thank them for their service. Um, but yeah, we'll be back to normal parking uh, next week. So you got a Bible. We're going to be in Acts 21 today. We're moving pretty firmly through the book of Acts. I'm really enjoying this walk through this book. It's one of my favorites. Acts 21. We're going to be tracking through quite a bit of scripture today, but that's going to be the one place I want you to keep open. And listen, if you don't have teenagers yet, um, you will experience this. If you have had teenagers, you will know what I'm talking about. But kids get to a certain age where they start kind of wringing their hands over what they call a hard decision. Your temptation as a parent will be to see that hard decision and say out loud, that's really not that big of a deal, right? That's a, how you choose your friend group is not that, like you shouldn't be losing sleep over that or what sticker to put on your water bottle, things like that. Not a big deal, right? That's what you will be tempted to say. You might even indulge yourself and just say it every now and then. But it makes me wonder whenever I feel like that, how many people are 10, 20, 30, 40 years older than me looking at me and saying, hey, listen, that's really not that big of a deal. That's not that hard of a decision to make. Hard decisions, they don't start at a certain age. They just follow us through life and they change shape over the years. And I think every single person in here walked in here with a hard decision. If you didn't, that's a problem. That'll be a problem. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But I think most of us probably have something that's threatening some consequences if we choose wrongly. And it's not going anywhere, right? It's just kind of sitting there. It's camped out in the back of our mind. It follows us from day to day. That is why we have to-do lists or task lists um, with things that are relatively easy to check off. And whenever you do, you're excited, you feel accomplished, you get that moment of high five of dopamine, moving through the day, feeling like you're achieving things, but there's always stuff lurking at the bottom in the cellar of your task list, the stuff that you cannot seem to check off that requires a hard decision, a decision we just know the consequences are gonna be heavy and we don't feel like making in the moment. Carries a lot of risk. It's what gave us the phrase, let me sleep on it, right? You ask me a hard question that's gonna require something difficult in the moment, I will probably say, let me sleep on that. Which sometimes what I'm really saying is, I don't wanna deal with that right now, so maybe if I just refuse to make the decision, it will make itself down the road. That might be what I'm saying, I might just need some sleep. I might just need a rested person to make that decision. I know a lot of people in here are facing impossible decisions today. I know that because I've spoken with you. Just crushing decisions. And it seems like every decision you can make is both right and wrong. And you, do, you just feel stuck. You don't know what to do. 
The consequences are heavy. I'd like to start off by saying why that's the case. Hard decisions are hard because creation is broken. Okay, it's not, nothing more complicated than that. We see in Genesis 3, God cursing the ground. And this is what he says to Adam. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Hey, listen, until we find dust again, our decisions are never going to give easy answers. Decisions come with their own thorns and thistles, don't they? I mean, that's what a pro-con list is. Has anyone ever told you, you just need to just jot down the pros and the cons. Just make a column, pros and cons, and that's how you get to a hard decision, right? Or, or a SWOT graph, you know, so with strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. What is that process if it's not working through the thorns and the thistles of a hard decision? But not all of our hard, hard, hard decisions will yield, even with a cute graph or a chart, like how to parent a wayward child, how to retire, when to retire, what to do in retirement, whether you should foster kids or not, adopt kids, adopt and foster, have kids, how many kids, decisions on a demanding career, one that could maybe blow your family up, or confession, that's a hard decision. Should you confess something to somebody or reconcile? How to reconcile some impasse you have with somebody else? What does reconciliation look like in that moment? What does life look like after reconciliation? All of these things are, are, are hard decisions, hard decisions. And, and listen, loving Jesus, it doesn't mean that your decision-making is going to get any easier. Frankly, between you and me, a lot of your decisions will get radically more difficult. I mean, in our old life, we didn't really consider God's will as a matter to be resourced whenever we're making a hard decision, right? Before Jesus, we didn't really pour over the scriptures to look and to see what it was that God was up to, what he was leading us to, what he was saying. What we would do is we'd make decisions by our gut, how we felt, which is a little bit of a moving target, correct? Because Monday, we don't feel like we do on Friday. That's how we used to make decisions. And then the gospel comes and kind of undoes all of that. And Jesus comes as what the Bible calls a last Adam or a second Adam. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, I think, 15, one of those chapters, 14, 15, where Jesus comes along as a, an anti-Adam in, in, in a sort of way, taking creations, thorns and thistles literally upon himself to bring us back to paradise. And we've even said from this stage, we've talked about it a few times, that, that you could basically sum the whole biblical narrative in four words, and that is paradise lost, paradise regained. And that's what Jesus does for us, the second Adam, the last Adam. He reverses the curse by becoming a curse for us, where one day, one day, he will remove all thorns and thistles, every sting, every complication, and every hard decision will be removed. Galatians 3 states it. Paul says it much better than I do. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In this gospel, the story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus, 
God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied. His love is satisfied. All commingled all at the same time. It's God's gospel. It's his gospel. He built it. It's his story of his goodness and his justice and his love for his glory. That's what we see. Charlie, she led you guys through Romans just a moment ago. She didn't know that this was in the text for today, but Romans 11.36, Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we know because it's been disclosed what God's ultimate will is, and that is to redeem and rescue broken creation. That we know, right? To rescue it from its groaning, as Paul talks about in Romans 8. It's groaning. It's ripping apart. He comes and he fixes that. But we don't immediately know his will for whether or not we put our kids in school. Don't know that. Or, or how much money to give into the ministry, how much to give the local church, how much to give your friends, you know, son who's a missionary, how, how to handle that, or how to forgive someone that's difficult, how to reconcile with them. That not so easy. And as we get older, the decisions don't get easier. They just change shape, as I said. I've watched men and women older than me and wiser than me really fight and struggle and strain over some hard decisions. They just don't go away. I'm making a big point of the statement, decisions can be hard. Hard because they carry consequences. Not easy ones, right? How many times have you looked at a decision that needs to be made and you thought to yourself, if I make that decision, my life gets 38% more difficult, right? I already know, I already know, if I do exactly what the Lord is calling me to do, and I'm pretty sure I know what that is, everything, I lose money, I lose time, I lose a lot by just moving forward. A lot of you are wrestling with this today. I, I know that. A lot, of the, a lot of the struggle you're having is just because you have clear view of what the consequences are. You know that the pain, the pain points, the pressure, it's all going to go up. But hard decisions can also be hard because we're trying to reconcile all the conflicting opinions that we aggregate and pull in from different sources, most of them that we trust. Sometimes the worst thing it feels like you can do when you're evaluating a hard decision is ask somebody you love, what do you think I should do? Have you ever done that? Hey, well, what do you think I should do? And after they're done quickly telling you what they think you should do, you walk away kind of sorry you asked the question. You feel more confused than you did to begin with. But we do need counsel. Proverbs 15.22 says this, Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Well, depends on the counselors, right? Depends on the counselors. I mean, counselors are good if you choose them well. If you come to me for a piece of counsel on just whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? And I, and, I, and I show you the word and I tell you what I think and I give you a piece of experience and I, I base it off of what God tells us, but then you go and you get an opinion from Joe Rogan or Whoopi Goldberg, right? Or your weird Uncle Al or you bark it into Alexa just in case some wisdom comes from the ether, right? If you do that, you can expect all of those opinions to conflict. You can. Different rubrics, different foundations holding us all together, over 20 years of doing this, I could tell you a lot of times someone will come to me needing to navigate a hard decision. And to be honest, it's tough for them. It's not really tough for me because the decision's already made. So I'll just say, well, listen, this is what the Bible says. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says, right? This is what we see in the Word. You should pray about it, but really, do you need to? I mean, 
pray about it, but, but here it is at the same time, right? And then they will go off and they will make, and you don't find out immediately, maybe a month later, a year later, six years later, they did the exact opposite thing. And I think in my mind, well, okay, I guess you could do that as well. I mean, good luck with that or not, you know? I mean, but that was an unwise decision. You've seen it. We make decisions differently than the world. And Paul is going to help us in our passage see that today. I mean, listen, how to make a wise, hard decision, that's not a sermon. It's a series. We're going to hit it from one angle today. I'm just going to be frank with you on that. But we, because we catch Paul at a tender moment. Jake did a great job of clicking on this last week when he was up here. We've seen him weather some things. Mankind has tried its best to break all they can of Paul. And the more I learn about Paul, and I'm still learning, it's that he has found the edges of affliction. We're all, we've all felt affliction. I think he has plumbed the depths or despair or even death. Right? We know this, but today... We don't just see his body broken or his friendships broken. We see his heart is broken. And it's broken while he's making a hard decision. Okay? So this is going to be the word for us today. Look in chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. If you're new or you don't have a Bible or a device, we will splash them up on the screen for you. But follow along with me a little bit. We're going to track and just see how God makes some things very clear for us and how we can see Christ clearly as well if we have eyes to see. And it says this, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Okay, let's pause right there. This is a brutal scene of friendship. It's beautiful at the same time. But if you've said goodbye to good friends, you felt it kind of pulling and tearing. I mean, that's a totally different sermon here, but this is a beautiful picture of friendship. What I want to kind of maybe zoom in on a little bit is why does it say that through the Spirit they saw something, right? It says that it was through the Spirit that the Spirit told them. And through the Spirit, it says, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is interesting. Did the Holy Spirit tell them that Paul wasn't supposed to go? That's the way it reads. But I, I thought that the Holy Spirit told Paul to go. We almost see something contrasting here. In fact, if you were to zoom back one chapter in 2022, it says this. Paul says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained, meaning chained, meaning shackled. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So the Spirit is showing these really great people what is waiting for Paul. The same thing that Paul had seen. But they didn't see it as good. They saw it as a prohibition. I don't blame them. They loved him. They saw through the Spirit, God was kind to show them something rough is going to happen to Paul. Now here's the big question for us. Was the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Is God telling two different things? The answer is no. 
They all saw predominantly the same thing. One group saw it as a prohibition. Paul saw it as preparation. He saw it as preparation. Look at verse 23 if you're there in chapter 20. If not, stay where you're at. Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. Hey, Paul, just right there for a second. Listen, if you knew that you were going to die, if you knew you were going to jail in six months, nine months, a year, and you knew it probably was going to end in your death, would it not change your Tuesday afternoon? It would. It is good that he was being prepared. His heart is being prepared because he's a missionary. He's a minister. He is a part of the church, and it's going to shape the future that he's walking on this planet. He says this, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course. Hey, side note, isn't it easier to fix everyone else's hard decisions when it is yours? I mean, I have struggled and been in the dark grasping for answers. You'd probably look at and feel like you would have a pretty clean line on what needs to happen, but I'm just wrestling, I'm struggling. All I have to do is hear like half of your sad story and I could give you what I think you should do, right? It's always easier, as they say, to fix someone else's Rubik's Cube. So what we have here is the Holy Spirit speaking something powerfully to two different groups and they're extracting a different interpretation of sorts. I'm I'm generalizing it. But let's look at verse six. No, yes, no, seven, verse seven. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is crazy. All right, I love this. This is the same Philip, by the way, that we'd already discussed way back that was the one that baptized the Ethiopian eunuch and then just vanished, was just carried away. And here we find him. Friends, this is 20 years later. That's how much time is compressed into the book of Acts. 20 years later, Paul bumps into him, and he's got a family in Caesarea, of all places. He's got four unmarried daughters, um, so pray for him. <laughs> That's going to get expensive for him. I don't know if he knows that or not. He's probably going to have to get a second gig for the uh, weddings. He's going to have to drive Uber or something to pay for that. I have two unmarried teenage daughters, right? And that's expensive. That's expensive. I'm already considering coming up with a GoFundMe that all of you can give to to help me out. Let's go ahead and read what it says in verse 10. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bowed his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, if that sounds weird, that's because it is. This didn't happen all the time, right? You're not seeing things like this happen all the time. It's stand out in its quality. It should stand out. God is supernaturally guiding Agabus to speak to Paul about what awaits him. Again, not to prohibit him, but to prepare him, to ready his heart. Everyone else sees a prohibition. He sees preparation. That's important that you see that. Look at verse 12. When he heard this, or when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, 
but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of, Cyp- of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. He also has a hard name to say. He needs a nickname. Manasseh is how you pronounce that. So big idea of our passage today, we are called to make hard decisions, and a lot of times it will be heartbreaking in nature. It will be a heartbreaking decision. You're called to make brutal, impossible decisions as the Lord leads you. You know, when our heart wants to do one thing, but we know we must do another, it breaks the heart. And that's why we hear Paul sounding like he does. Paul wanted to listen to their counsel. Why? Because he loves them. They're friends. He says, well, why are you doing this? Stop. You're breaking my heart. You already know this is hard. You already know that I'm going. We all know I'm probably not coming back. You're making this hard. You're breaking my heart. That's the scene. They would have loved for him to just stay and change his mind, but he knew to accommodate them and their affection for him would be to refuse the Lord. How does a guy get to a place like this? How does a guy, listen, I consider myself growing in maturity. I think if the whole room said, Luke, don't go, I I think I'd be very tempted to say, you twisted my arm. I think I'm staying because I love you and I don't want to die, right? How does he get to a place like this? I think a king showed him how to do it, his king. Luke 22, we see Jesus saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Listen, Jesus' heart, it was broken long before we pierced it, long before we stuck a spear in it. He loved his friends. Those weren't just his disciples he wanted to be with. They were his friends. He loved them. They loved him. But he preferred the will of his father, the glory of his father. And we don't just have it there. It's not just stamped in that passage. But if we were to step back in time, we'll see him in Matthew 16. It says this, and Peter took him aside, meaning Jesus, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, here we have it. Listen, when God's glory is our main goal, many decisions, as brutal and as impossible as they feel, are actually not impossible after all. A lot of them just make themselves. It's not calculus. It might be hard because of the weight of the consequences, but it's not difficult, if that makes any sense. But it gets toxic, our decision-making process, whenever we say and flip what Jesus says, not your will, but mine be done. Not your will. That my mind won't be on the things of God, but will be firmly planted in the things of man. That's when it gets difficult. Friends, listen, some of you want to do great things for God. And you know, and you sense, God is drawing you into a life of consequences. Right? Welcome to what we have called this place, hell in the hallway, which is not a phrase original to me. 
But it's this place of liminality, difficult decisions. You can't really go back. You got to go forward, but you don't know which way to go. So you're stuck. And that's a hellish place to be, right? People that love you, people that you've grown up with saying, go one way. The Bible, the best you understand it anyway, says go another way. You're praying, but you don't really hear anything. So you're stuck. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a felt hellish place. But I am here to say that is the disciples' place of growth, this place of consequences. Listen, I'm a church planner through and through. But before I was a church planner, I was a campus minister. That's where I cut my teeth. And one of my favorite things about campus ministry to date is I have seen dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of young people just disappoint their parents and their advisors and their friends by just forking it all and going straight into the vocational ministry. I've loved that. It's totally illogical. It's not even safe. It's ill-advised, and yet God draws them into adventure. It's fascinating to me. By the way, I think he's doing that to a lot of people today, maybe even some of you. I'm not saying campus ministry, although that might be one of them, but do you not, some of you sense this pulling, this drawing of God on your life into a place of consequence. You know it's going to cost a lot, and so you push it down the list. You know it's going to irreparably change your life. And so you just kind of kick the can down the street. Listen, Paul understands you. And, and I think you understand Paul a little bit. You see, this is where a passage like this finds me cracked and broken. I live for another king, yet I still want to be a king. I still want to be my own king. I mean, ask yourself the question, if you're faced with a very difficult decision, a significant one, why is it hard for you? Why? Just graph it out. Are you trying to protect something? Maybe avoid something. If it's a place where you are saying in your heart, my will, not yours, be done. My mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. That's a place of repentance. That's a place where we are holding an unsubmitted will a will we're not willing to just put before the Lord and say, you do as you see fit. And that requires a turning from us, a turning to where we look at a kind father and say, I trust you. Your will, not my will be done. I trust you. You're good. Your glory, not my glory. This is a place where we let go of self-preservation. We welcome the consequences of a disciple's life. So if that's you, I want to talk about two things you can be ready for as you make hard decisions, even with a broken heart. One of them is you can be ready for static. Static. I've never made a significant decision that I did not have a line of people telling me I was making the wrong one. I've never made a good decision, a hard decision for the Lord, where someone that I love, grew up with, trusted, cared for, says, you are ruining everything. You're going to regret that. You're making a big mistake. Right? And it breaks our hearts. It breaks our hearts because we love them. Hey, good question. At what point do you ignore their counsel? I mean, we're talking about getting counselors, right? People that we, at what point do you say, yeah, thanks, I hear you, but I'm going to do it anyway? When is that to the glory of God? Very quickly, when God has been clear with you, painfully clear, and it's agreed by all that it doesn't call us to sin or be foolish, sin or be foolish, 
you're free to do so. You're free to do it. Just evaluate it by the scripture. After you've prayed through it, fasted even, had some sleepless nights if need be, journaled over it, just put it before the scriptures and and just use this as your decision-making rubric. And can it stand on its own two feet, your decision? Does it make sense anymore? And this is where counsel will help us. One of the things counsel is good for, by the way, and why it's dangerous if you're trying to go it alone on hard decisions, which I highly do not recommend, is because a lot of times, many of the things you are resolved that the Bible is silent on, it's actually quite clear on, right? It's always amazing to me how so many modern, advanced decisions that we have to make are answered by an archaic, yet living word. And sometimes when someone comes and says, I have a hard decision to make and I don't know whether to jig or jag on this thing. I don't know where to go. All I have to do is just open this up and say, well, have you read this though? I mean, you've read this, right? No, I didn't even know that was in there. I mean, it's helpful for us as a community to lead each other into the word because we don't know everything that's in there. And sometimes it just it slips out of our swing. We forget. And it's helpful for someone to, just to remind us. The Bible does say this, though, Luke. You're right, it does. Totally forgot about that. But when people around you are leading you, not from the revealed will of God, but only for their concern for you, just Move forward anyway. I'm just going to say it. Who knows why they're doing that? Maybe they're indicted because God's putting the same thing on them and they just don't want to do it. Maybe they just don't know. Maybe they're uninformed. Maybe they don't know the Bible. This is why you should be very careful with your counselors. Friends, listen, can just be careful. I get it. I, I get it. You grew up with them. You know, they, they know you better than you know yourself. That's the phrase. They're like family. I get it. But are they making a decision through the grid of the revealed word of God? If not, you might as well just listen to a plant, right? You're better off at that point. So expect static, right? The other one is be ready for a fight. Expect a fight. I like how Paul says it, I don't know what will happen to me in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit told me that it rhymes with affliction and it sounds like suffering, right? (laughs) I don't know what it is. It's not great, though. I know that. He is ready for a fight. Listen, we don't choose suffering because it's impressive. We choose suffering because it comes with holiness. It just does. If you're chasing holiness, friend, you're chasing suffering. You have to know that. That's what shapes us into a place of holiness. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is spent by you and me picking up a cross, which symbolizes the laying down of a kingdom as we pick up another one. It symbolizes a deep sacrifice. It symbolizes a submitted life. Friend, that picks a fight. Not just with the thorns and the thistles of a broken creation, but with an enemy. And I will say it picks a fight with your own flesh because the flesh refuses to be put down easily. It will refuse it. You will know this. To the degree that you grow in your holiness, you will feel suffering. And here's my biggest concern. Some of us have no fights before us. It's because we refuse to obey. We refuse to submit our lives. Holiness is not something we reach for. It's just stalled out. And and listen, maybe you began adventurous. Maybe when you started this thing called Christianity, you were holding this world with an open hand. You greeted adventure. But at some point, you decided it was easier to just obey the flesh as the determiner of all decisions. Friends, you've been tamed. 
You're not constrained by the Holy Spirit. You're constrained nonetheless, though. You're in prison. You're shackled. Now you look in the mirror, and although you don't have any fight in front of you, you've got something worse. You've got a boringly predictable life where there's no chance of you ever being uncomfortable. No big risks. Not swinging for the fence anymore. Not digging deep. Not risking your life upon the Lord anymore. No hell in the hallway for you. Your will is preserved. Your comfort reigns. Your will be done. But you're not free, are you? You're in a prison. Prison of self-destruction, one of convenience. I will say this only because Jesus says this. You are also losing your life. You're losing it as you try to save it. You're losing it by the minute. This is what he says in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That we've read. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What I'm begging you to do today is to exhaust your life for the Lord. Not just to to get more adventure, not to be less bored, but to serve the king. But you can expect turbulence and static. You can expect a fight. And friends, you can straight up expect a broken heart. But here's the good news. There is a felt freedom in trusting Jesus with your plan, no matter the consequences. There's just a freedom. Paul's walking in a freedom here. I love how John Newton says it. He says, what you will, when you will, how you will. What you will, when you will, how you will. It's the signature of an abandoned life, no matter the consequences. No matter. And the Christian with an abandoned life is prisoner to nothing. Prisoner to nothing. Listen, you're even free from self-judgment. This is important for you to know because some of you are making big league decisions and they don't feel like they're landing right, okay? Even if everything comes off the tracks after you make a significant weight-bearing decision, did you know that you were free from self-judgment? I mean, have you ever made just a big decision that you've prayed for, you've sought the Lord for, you fasted for, your entire calm group says thumbs up, everything is a go, you do it, and then you just kind of stand back and look at the carnage and think, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, there's that, I guess. Wasn't quite expecting that. Did you know that you were free from the shame of the results of a decision? You're free from it. I mean, if not, I mean, just think about it. The world would have looked at Paul and Jesus and looked at the trajectory of their life and said, yep, not a bad decision, but like a line in a string of bad decisions. That's what got those jokers where they ended up, right? That's what the world would say. You're free from that. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. I love this. It's, it could be confusing if you're new to it, but it really shouldn't be. He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Does that sound healthy? Sounds like he's a little out of touch with himself, right? I don't even judge myself. Hey, how about that? Don't even judge myself. What are you saying? He's saying his self-evaluation was irrelevant. He didn't weigh man's approval of him or even his own. All that mattered was God's judgment, and he was pretty sure that that was secured by the cross. Nothing else to fear, right? So he didn't wilt under some weird introspection. He's not wringing his hands in prison, going over all the regrets. He didn't have to do that. So friend, listen, if the decisions you are making, if the results look more like a foul ball than a home run, just remember that some of our decisions, they might be wrong, but made rightly. They might look right on the outside, but made wrongly. And God knows the difference. And it matters. 
and it matters. Remember that he judges rightly and that the judgment against you has been satisfied. So you don't even have to go through the exercise of judging yourself, right? Listen, if you're here or you're watching and you would be pretty sure that you're not even a Christian, you're not sure, but you're pretty sure, you, you know that you don't love God, right? You might be facing a decision that's very different from the rest of the room, the decision to surrender an unsubmitted heart. And for you, friend, that judgment will be settled against you. And see, that's the way judgment works. Judgment has fallen on Christ, and therefore Christ absorbs it for all of his children, his family. If you are in Christ, then what he did as far as receiving the wrath and the judgment of God was sufficient. It will not pass forth to you. If, however, you are not in Christ, there will be a day where judgment will be answered to the last drop. It's important that you know that. It's also important that you know that picking up your cross is dying to this world. And of course, the world's going to tell you it's foolish to do that. So maybe some of your loved ones will agree. Yet God had his own heart broken to rescue you. He had his own heart broken. He wasn't just crushed to redeem creation, but you as a part of creation. He doesn't just look at people and say, well, there's people. I love people. He sees you. He says, I love you. Not because you're impressive, but because he is impressive. Not because you're lovable or righteous, but because he is lovable and righteous. He picked up a cross for his family, dying to this world, and he calls you and me to walk the same path in the same shape, making hard decisions that, yes, friends, will break our hearts.